The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. In this paradox in the UK, we have the second largest pools of capital, long-term capital, in the world after the US, um, in the form of pensions, uh, pension funds and insurance companies. But over the past 25 years, they've had their risk appetite kicked out of them by well-intended reforms to accounting standards, tax treatment and regulation. That's William Wright, the founder and managing director of the think tank New Financial, talking to me about some of the deep challenges confronting the City of London. Listen on to hear more of our fascinating conversation about the UK's financial landscape after Brexit. Welcome back to The Exchange, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views that explores some of the big questions in business and finance with expert guests. I'm Peter Thalas, I'm the global editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from London. In this week's episode, we are delving into the state of the UK as a financial centre. Barely a day seems to go by at the moment without the City of London suffering another perceived blow to its status. Big companies are choosing to list their shares in New York, trading is shifting to other venues in the United States and Asia, and banks are building up their offices in other European capitals. Some of this is a consequence of Brexit, which removed London from the European single market for financial services. But there are other forces at play too. Meanwhile, the UK government is hyperactively trying to tweak the rules on stock market listings, bank supervision, and insurance regulation, to name but a few, in an attempt to seize what it says are the benefits of being outside the EU. To unpick all of this, I sat down with William Wright. William is a long-term observer of the City of London, first as a financial journalist, but for the last decade or so as the managing director of New Financial, the think tank that consistently produces some of the most thoughtful and insightful research on UK and European capital markets. Our conversation covered everything from pension funds to post-Brexit deregulation. I hope you find it as thought-provoking as I did. William Wright, welcome to The Exchange. Uh, Nice to see you, Peter. It's great to have you on. Uh, There's a lot for us to talk about. But I think what I'd like to do just to start is to to put this this question about the City of London in context, because it feels like like the financial industry in the UK goes through a sort of spasm of anxiety every few years or so about its competitive position. So how would you sort of assess the current concerns and and how seriously should we be taking them relative to past periods? You're right, it does. It has these sort of episodic spasms of anxiety that we, 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 we talked about recently. And they're nothing new. And it's not just London that has them. You will probably remember if we rewind 15 to 20 years, New York was going through its own spasm of anxiety about the future of New York as a financial centre, commissioned a study on how to, how to ensure that New York wasn't losing business to London and to Singapore. Uh, and these things tend to go in cycles. I think so I, I would highlight, I suppose, sort of three key issues in this particular spasm. Firstly, timing-wise, there's obviously a a period of reflection right now because we've just gone through this extremely bruising period of voting for Brexit, implementing Brexit and adjusting to it. And we've always argued at New Financial that on the one hand, Brexit 
we don't we don't take a political position on Brexit. Brexit inevitably has a mechanical impact on the role of the city in terms of supporting financing the EU economy. But it does present, on the one hand, an opportunity to change some of the rules that never really worked for the UK, that the UK argued against when they were implemented at an EU level. But also that there's an imperative to change some of those rules, because if you're going to shoot yourself in one foot, you you, you want to make sure uh, that you're taking some steps to, to, to avoid it. And we haven't really seen the promised Brexit benefits for the city coming through. So any news right now that is perceived as negative for London as a financial centre is perhaps amplified politically. Secondly, I think that there is a sort of longer term structural issue going on here. As you know, capital markets, financial centres, these are businesses that benefit from scale. And they also are businesses that, that benefit from the wider environment, the wider economic environment. And we've seen over 20, 30 years the rise of the US as the global financial center uh, in terms of people going to, going, seeking to raise capital. And we've seen a shift away from European markets uh, towards Asia in terms of uh, economic activity and growth. So inevitably, London is going to find itself squeezed in between. And then thirdly, I think there's a structural issue around just developed markets full stop. When we look at you know, the lightning rod for concerns around London's future as a financial centre always seems to be listings on the London Stock Exchange because it's the easiest thing to understand, it's the easiest thing to quantify, and frankly, the numbers don't look great. But if you look at US stock markets over the past 25 years, if you look at most European stock markets over the past 25 years, there has been this relentless structural decline, fall in the number of listed companies, um, stagnation really in the, in the sort of size of the market relative to, relative to the economy, uh, and a fall in the number of new issues and IPOs and companies choosing to list on those markets. This is not a UK-specific problem, but we are perhaps, maybe because of, of, of the political environment right now, we are, we are acutely, uh, or we're particularly good, sometimes perhaps, at pretending that it's a UK-specific problem. Yeah, so that's a that's a great overview, and I think there's lots there we can we can dig into. Just, I mean, maybe just to start with the the list, the most immediate question, which is which is over listings. And I, I take your point about about this being a relative problem, and, and you know, sort of other financial centres also having periods of, of of wondering whether they're getting left behind. And actually, even more recently, I was in New York a few months ago, and all anybody could talk about was how all the bankers and the hedge funds were moving to Miami and New York was being hollowed out. To totally, yeah. So, so it's, it depends a bit on where you're sitting. But there does seem to be something going on with listings. I mean, so I think we've now had three consecutive prime ministers in Britain who've tried to, and failed to keep ARM or persuade SoftBank to list ARM, the, the big chip designer in London. Um, uh, we've had companies like CRH, the construction company, move, moving its primary listing. There's an activist trying to pervade, persuade British American tobacco to move its listing. So what do you attribute that to? And, and is that something that, that regulation or policy can do something about? I think the first thing to say about it is that every unhappy listed company in the UK is unhappy in their own particular way. <laughs> um, 
when you look at someone like CRH uh, thinking about moving or Flutter thinking about moving, Ferguson moving last year, it, it was predominantly because they've expand, they've been successful. The stock exchange, has, the stock market has served them well. They've used the stock market to help them acquire businesses in the US and the 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 balance you know, the core of their of their economic activity or their business activity has shifted from UK and Europe to the US if you get to a stage where the majority of your business is being conducted in the US market or you see that the longer term opportunity is to make the majority of your business the US market it sort of makes sense if you're a global company to move your listing to the US market. I think, however, that there is also an issue that over the past six, seven years in the UK, the combination of the economic economic and political uncertainty around Brexit, the impact on sterling uh, from the Brexit referendum, perhaps the, the, the outcome, the longer term impact of government policy, wider economic policies from 2010 onwards have all come together to produce a not particularly vibrant economic environment, not particularly stable political environment to attract new companies uh, to list. And then in the background, there's been these sort of big structural shifts in, in all markets, but perhaps particularly so in the UK, the rise of the increase in the availability of private capital that makes private equity, private markets perhaps more attractive relative to equity markets, the increase in uh, the perceived and real burden around corporate governance uh, and disclosure of being a listed companies. We used to joke that uh, since 1992, there had been more iterations of the corporate governance code in the UK than there had been prime ministers. Now that that stood up until having three prime ministers in the space of a few months last year, but it, but it sort of gives an indication of how intense, arguably oppressive, the corporate governance regime in the UK uh, may have been. But I think the challenge when you come to, to, to thinking about regulation and policy is that so much of the focus in the past two or three years and a huge amount of valuable work has been done over the past few years <clears throat> in terms of thinking about how can we reform UK markets, how can we in the government's words, seize the benefits of Brexit. Most of that work is focused on what we would say are downstream issues. Regulations, the listing regime, things that we can identify as at least part of the problem, things that we can change relatively quickly, and things where you would hope to see a relatively relatively short-term return on that change. Uh, and the perfect example, I think, is, is you know, the excellent um, listings review by, by, by Lord Hill, secondary capital raising review. All of these are focused very much on downstream issues. We think that the, those downstream issues are often barriers. They're worth addressing. They will help at the margin, but they're not the fundamental structural causes. And we think those causes are much further upstream. The obvious one where we've been doing a lot of work recently is, is looking at the behavior of UK pension funds, UK insurance companies. And this paradox in the UK, we have the second largest pools of capital, long-term capital in the world 
after the US in the form of pensions, uh, pension funds and insurance companies. But over the past 25 years, they've had their risk appetite kicked out of them by well-intended reforms to accounting standards, tax treatment and regulation. And there has been this flight by pension funds and insurance companies out of equities uh, and into fixed income and out of the UK stock market in particular. And the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, back in 1997, pension funds in the UK allocated around just under three quarters of their assets to equities. Now that's come down to 27% today. And they've slashed their allocation to UK equities from just over half, 53%, to 6% today. The UK market now, the UK pension fund industry, now has the lowest allocation to equities of any, any, comparable, any comparable pension system in the world and the highest allocation to fixed income. So just unpack that a bit, because you said it's a combination of, of, I mean, those are striking numbers. You said it's a combination of accounting standards, regulation, and so forth. So, so what happened there that, that led to that? So I mean, you can go back over 40, 50 years for the gradual sort of chipping away the, the long-term sustainability of, UK, uh, of the UK pension funds, uh, UK pension system, the, the, the private side, the funded side of the system. We're not, to, to be clear, we're not talking here about the state pension. We're not talking about unfunded schemes like the NHS. Um, and what started happening in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, firms began to get a little bit concerned about the high cost of uh, generous pension contributions that they were making to, on behalf of their employees in what are known as defined benefit pension schemes. So defined benefit is you get a fixed proportion of your final or your average career salary as your pension. You know what you're going to get and therefore the liability and the risk is carried by your employer. Um, so they started to think about closing these down, reducing their allocation, re reducing their contributions, um, and beginning to close down the schemes entirely to, 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 to new members. And we began to see this shift away from defined benefit, DB, to defined contribution. And that's where you know in individuals and employers make a defined contribution. That element is fixed the value of the pension in 20, 30, 40 years time is very much defined by market outcomes, asset allocation, investment performance. So you're shifting the risk from the company largely to the individual. That risk, that, that, that sort of process of closure, closing down schemes and switching from defined benefit to defined contribution was then accelerated through the 90s. There was a, a there was a shift in thinking around the financial theory of pension funds. Um, taking a much more sort of um, modern financial theory theoretical approach, looking more at net present value of future cash flows and so on. So you began to see this shift away from the aim of a pension fund manager is to maximize the value of the assets towards the aim of the pension fund manager is to, uh, is to match um, the profile to, to invest in things that match the profile of their future cash flow liabilities, um, which is going to include largely a shift from, from equities, which are return-seeking assets, to fixed income, particularly index-linked 
uh, fixed income index linked guilds. This was then accelerated further, accounting standard changes introduced in the early noughties, uh, reinforced uh, 10 years later, that basically forced the liabilities of pension schemes onto the balance sheet of the company. Um, it gave companies pretty much all of the downside and none of the upside from their pension scheme. And it was through that process, you, you may remember that the British Airways, before it became IAG, British Airways was widely known as, as, a, as a pension scheme deficit that, that happened to run an airline at the same time. And it really, once, you, once you start having to put these, these deficits onto your balance sheet, it really highlights the, 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 the challenges in running a sustainable DB scheme. And what we've seen over the past 15 years in the private sector defined benefit scheme is that we've gone from a world where around two-thirds of private sector DB schemes were open to new or existing members um, back in 2006 to just 10% of them being open today. Now, that, if you add all of these things together, sorry, I forgot to mention, on top of that, there's also significant tax changes that were introduced uh, in the early 90s by the Conservatives around the treatment of uh, the tax treatment of dividends for pension funds. And one of the first measures taken by the incoming Labour government in 1997, uh, abolishing the advanced corporation tax uh, dividend credit, um, which suddenly made invest it suddenly made dividend income from, from uh, UK companies far less attractive for pension funds it made investing in equities far less attractive for them. You put those three things together and you've got the rapid closure of defined benefit schemes and this wholesale shift out of equity uh, and into fixed income. Um, in the past 25 years, UK pension schemes on average have quadrupled their allocation to fixed income. Now, if you're going to rip out um, such a huge part of the sort of natural demand for local equities, domestic equities, then you shouldn't really be surprised if you see five, 10, 15 years down the line, um, a decline and stagnation in the valuation and attractiveness of your of your stock market. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, a couple of things there. I mean, I think first of all, to, to use your sort of upstream, downstream analogy, I mean, I mean, if you're thinking about upstream, I guess what you're really thinking about is, and this has been a long subject of debate in the UK, is the sort of funding of startup companies and risk appetite and the availability of venture capital and all those kinds of totally. things. All, all of that we would put in the, 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 the upstream category. Why, why are there, we, we, look, we tend to look at the sort of, when a, when a potential company comes near the stock market and we look at the issues there, what we're not looking at is, where is the pipeline of all of those companies? Why isn't the pipeline as big as it should be? Um, and you're talking there, there are education issues, there are cultural, issue, cultural attitudes to money, to risk, to entrepreneurship. Um, there's the capital issue, there's taxation, there's uh, government-led investment. There are a whole host of issues that have been decades in the making and will take, therefore, decades to address. But the best time to address them, if you know something's going to take 5, 10, 25 years, 
to, to, to begin to reverse or solve, the best time to start working on that is now. Yeah. I guess the other thing I would say about, about your, I mean, the pension fund thing is very interesting. I mean, when I started, first started as a financial journalist some time ago, um, Same time as me, I think. <laughs> probably. So you'll remember this. The UK stock market was sort of dominated by these these big fund managers, Hermes and Mercury Asset Management and Phillips and Drew. And you often, even these big UK companies would have four or five really big investors who kind of more or less yeah, called the shots. And the complaint you often heard in those days was these big funds, they're all very short-termists, they don't understand these innovative companies, they don't reward investment, they're too focused on dividends, they sell out too easily to takeovers. So, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a danger here that you sort of, that you, you hark back to a sort of halcyon period when actually, totally. it's not entirely clear to me that if you recreated the UK pension fund industry as it existed at the time, whether that would then would that would then solve these problems? How would you sort of think no, about th that? Look, I think that's that's a fair observation. I mean, in uh, in some of Philip Auger's work about the history of the city, he makes it very clear that as you were heading into the nineteen eighties, you really looking around at the UK asset management industry, you really wouldn't think that this was this was a potentially world beating um, sector. Uh, of financial services that was going to flourish um, in, in, in the coming decades. And one of the, yeah, the main trends, of course, that we've seen since you and I started as cup reporters in the mid-90s-ish is the, the wholesale sort of internationalization of that industry. One by one, the largest UK firms were picked off uh, by European or predominantly uh, American uh, or North American Owners, and we've seen this in the the the, the overall ownership, you know, the the parentage of assets under management in the UK. About half of that today is through North American owned firms, and we're not. To be clear, I mean, I'm not suggesting for a moment. Let's let's rewind the clock 25, 30 years because the industry was perhaps a little too parochial, a little too focused on the UK and a little bit to um, not just the asset management industry, but, but the, the, uh, the investment banking industry, the market infrastructure and exchange industry, it was sort of pretty much, the UK end of that was pretty stuck in, stuck in the sort of 1960s um, in terms of technology, in terms of global outlook and, and, and so on. But I do get the sense that the, 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 the pendulum has swung a little bit too mm. far. You don't, in financial theory, you would you would want you wouldn't want any domestic equity bias. So the propensity of an investor to to be overweight, invest more in their local market than its its value relative to to regional or global benchmarks. But actually, all markets have a domestic bias because retail investors, in particular, smaller institutions, local asset managers when you think about it, it, it sort of makes sense for a UK-based asset manager to have a better take, a better understanding of UK-based based companies than Japanese or French or, or, or American companies. Um, and you also want those, you want those local investors 
to effectively act as a sort of anchoring point or as a signal to international investment. Um, one, somebody put it to me the other day that, that if you're an international investor and you look at the UK market and you think, well, hang on a minute, if these UK pension funds don't want any of these companies, or if these UK asset managers can't be bothered to make active investment decisions between FTSE 100 companies, then why the hell should we? Because there's no sort of, there's no sort of active signal coming from a vibrant UK investor base. Um, and I don't say it's not about rewinding to a world and not proposing for a moment that 53% of uh, pension fund assets uh, in the UK should be invested in, in the stock market, in the UK stock market. But maybe what if we were to rewind even five or as little as 10 years? Because the other side, is, there's a flip side of this. It's not just, you know, pension funds do not exist in order to support the UK economy. And they don't exist to serve the, ref the, the, the political will <clears throat> of whichever government is asking them to invest more in the UK. The, you can argue that certainly the, the supporting growth and investment is, is a fundamental function of pension funds, but it's not a requirement. What they do exist to do is to provide a secure uh, and healthy, prosperous, reasonable at least, um, future retirement for their members. And switching you know, this, this wholesale shift out of equities, not just UK equities, but out of equities full stop, the shift away from return-seeking assets to matching assets um, doesn't look like it's actually going to deliver on that fundamental underlying purpose of providing yeah. uh, a secure retirement income, a healthy retirement for their members. Yeah. So just so so coming back to regulation then, what how should we think about about particularly about sort of some of the the sort of deregulatory impulses? I mean, I'm, I'm generalising, but we've sort of had all these reviews, yep. you know, <clears throat> um, um, and there's been a lot of discussion about sort of uh, sweeping away some of the EU re regulation that that doesn't make sense for the UK or. Um, uh, closing gaps, sort of regulatory gaps, with with other with other places where which are mm, more attractive, mm. other listing venues that are more attractive and stuff. I mean, do you? How much can that achieve? Do you think? And I guess the other question I would have is sort of is is how much of a tension do you see there between between what the politicians are trying to do and what the regulators are willing to do? Yeah. Um, I think first point to make, I mean, if you look at the reform package in the UK, the Edinburgh reforms, there are 31 different measures, different areas uh, in um, what, what, what Michel Barnier or the EU would call 31 different dossiers uh, in the Edinburgh reforms. And some of those are very unformed, um, literally a few sentences with not a great deal of work behind them. And some of them reflect you know, years of consultations and, and reviews and multiple uh, reforms um, behind them. But when you look at them in the round, I think the problem with this approach <clears throat> is that 
A, there's a bit of a political disconnect between what the government would like this reform package to achieve and the substance of the reforms. Um, that disconnect has narrowed in the past six months. We don't have the Prime Minister and the Chancellor uh, shouting from the rooftops about Big Bang 2.0 and deregulation and making the UK the finest place in the world for financial services. But it's still, there is still a disconnect when you compare the political statements and, and the substance. The other problem is, I think, that, that there, is, there is so much in there. I mean, the word we keep hearing back from the industry is laundry list. There's an element of a little bit of something for everybody, making sure that every single segment of the industry has got something, um, uh, a nice little present uh, somewhere in the Edinburgh reforms. And what, it then, what that then does is it, it, it perhaps confuses or elides some not particularly substantial reforms with some really quite substantial reforms at the same time. So when people talk about this is an exercise in deregulation or you know, this is setting us off down the path towards another financial crisis, there are only really two areas two obvious areas in the Edinburgh reforms where you could, maybe three, uh, where you could perhaps say that that is a risk. One is, is changes to the senior manager regime um, that was implemented after the crisis. Two is potential changes to ring fencing and three is changes to solvency two. And on each of those, supervisors, regulators have already pushed back. And we're in a slightly paradoxical place in the UK because the government is perhaps being more politically overt about what it wants the city to do and what it, how it wants the city to behave and the changes that it's going to make. But simultaneously, because of the, 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 the practical management of, well, how do we actually write this legislation? How do we implement these regulations? Um, simultaneously, it's transferred a huge amount of the authority and power to decide and define regulation to supervisors whose independence is embedded by law. So there's a potential risk, and we've already run into that, particularly on Solvency 2, where the government says, we want this, and the supervisors say, well, that's very nice, but actually we don't think that's a very good idea. And they will tend to muddle their way towards um, uh, a compromise, which may be a happy or an unhappy one. My concern is that that structure, it's the, sort of, it's the least worst solution to the problem of leaving the EU and transferring, transposing, adapting the rulebook that we inherited from the EU to the UK market. But I don't think it's really going to be tenable or sustainable in the long term because I think we're going to end up seeing more and more political differences. There's not a comment on this administration, but imagine a change of government that wants to go in a very different way. Or imagine in X elections time that we have an even more radical conservative government that, that perhaps wants to adopt more of the the sort of policies that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were talking about, it's going to immediately put them on a collision course with 
independent supervisors and regulators with a huge amount of power. Yeah, that's very interesting. Just to finish off, one, one question I, I think would be interesting is, is how much do you think the shift in, broadly defined the shift in, in what's going on in financial markets at the moment and some of the risks that are bubbling up are going to or should influence this debate? So, I mean, we're recording this few days after the rescue of Credit Suisse by UBS, you know, and the, who knows what else will happen next. It does feel like there's a sort of, we've had a period of, long period of low interest rates, which brought this flourishing of venture capital and, you know, tech companies and, you know, all those kinds of things and, and, and lots of debt. And that's changing. Is there a danger here that sort of, that in the UK, there's, a, there's an attempt to try and sort of design a system which looks a bit like the US system of the last 10 years, yeah. just to the point at which that's changing. Yeah, I think the, the, the events of the last six months in particular, you know, and we had the, the best local, the best UK example of that was the guilt crisis and the LDI crisis that followed, do highlight that the government has to tread, or the UK has to tread extremely carefully in terms of this reform process. And I think you have to then drill down into the individual files, the individual dossiers to say, it, almost to separate them into which, which of these are about removing what the UK has long considered to be sort of obvious impediments to conducting day-to-day -day business. And which of these are more to do with uh, trying to either ensure um, financial stability, resilience in the system, trying to encourage greater responsibility, cultural change in the industry itself. And that, I think, is where you come back to these, these, these three big ones in there that I think are the ones where if, if, I, happen to be in if I happen to be making decisions in Treasury right now, I would probably be pausing or thinking about pausing uh, some of the work, at least, on on solvency two, on on the senior manager regime, uh, and on ring fencing. Um, those last two were very, very specifically put in place as a response to the last crisis. Now, one thing we know about the next crisis when it comes is that it the cause will be different uh, to the last one. And you look at a firm like Credit Suisse, um, and you could sort of argue that the, on a straightforward capital solvency liquidity basis, it was bomb-proof, but only bomb-proof against the threat from the previous crisis, unfortunately quite exposed to some other threats. But I don't think now is the best time to be rethinking, if you will, the defences, playing around with those the defences that were put in place in response to the previous crisis. There are plenty of other areas within those 31 dossier that could keep government busy and the treasury and the industry busy for many years to come that I think could have an incremental improvement um, on the ability of the city to do its sort of both of its day jobs. One, to support investment in the UK economy and two, to act as a a host or a venue for international activity. Great. Well, keep them busy and keep you busy as well. 
think William, and hopefully us as well. So um, lots for us to talk about in future, but this was really fascinating. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Peter. That's the end of this week's show. Thank you for tuning in. And many thanks to my colleagues, Thomas Shum and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, who produced this podcast. You can find more episodes of The Exchange on Megaphone or your favorite podcast app, where you will also find our sister podcast, The Views Room. Don't forget to check out our views every day at breakingviews.com or on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.